Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast. We have a very special guest today. I have the great fortune of talking to Olivia Blake, the author of The Atlas Six. You may have heard of it and the forthcoming Atlas Paradox. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I have so many questions about this (laughs) book series. This book seems to have taken, well, the Atlas Six and certainly the Atlas Paradox seems to have just taken book talk, bookstagram, everything by storm. Can you tell our listeners who, if they're living under a rock, maybe aren't familiar (laughs) with uh, the world of the Atlas Six and, and where we might pick up with the Atlas Paradox? Sure. So the Atlas Six is about the Alexandrian Society, a secret society and the caretakers of lost knowledge from the Library of Alexandria and on throughout history. So I've made this assumption that the Library of Alexandria did not in fact burn down, it just um, hid itself in secret. And there have been these generations of magicians that have continued to contribute to that knowledge throughout time. And the Atlas Six is specifically about the six extraordinary magicians who are recruited for the most recent class of the Alexandrian society. So um, it's definitely a very, very character-driven book. It's really about these six people and their relationships. I like to refer to it as it's both a six-person love story and like a slightly deranged family drama um, (laughs) with elements of psychological thriller because there is an elimination clause. So in book one, we understand, we, we go in knowing that there's six candidates, only five of them can move forward. And then they discover what that elimination clause really means and how literal it actually is. But then something happens at the end of the Atlas Six, uh, where one of those characters ends up hmm, more or less lost in space and time. And that's where we pick up in the Atlas Paradox. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say at the end of the Atlas Six, I remember I audibly gasped just at how everything transpired. And I was very lucky to be able to immediately pick up my advanced copy of the Atlas Paradox. But I know a lot of people are eagerly awaiting to like read what happens next for these characters. Yeah, you've got to be in the luckiest 1% probably. Because so this book initially came out in January of 2020. I self-published it. It was my ninth self-published work. And I really did not think it was going anywhere. (laughs) And I just wrote it because it was what I was interested in at the time. So I just wanted to write a story that was basically like six completely unreliable narrators and the actual plot kind of lives in the way their perspectives juxtapose. Um, And then a variety of things happened, the pandemic for one, uh, my child for another, (laughs) Um, mostly that I finally had some traditional publishing success in young adult romance. So I thought, oh gosh, am I a young adult romance author now? Like maybe I have to hit pause on my 
personal stuff, which is obviously then when the Atlas series went viral. And uh, yeah, so the Atlas Paradox, it's actually been a long time coming um, for a lot of people. And then of course, thankfully, there are the lucky few that get to just jump right in. Yeah. And so that's um, a great point to talk about a little bit, the journey to getting to this point. You said it was self-published in January of 2020, and then it was published by Macmillan in March of this year. So it was almost like given a whole new life yes, um, and a whole new audience of readers, um, you know, between self-published and when it sort of went viral and took over. I know the original uh, covers and the self-published versions are hotly uh, in demand on book talk. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a, a very, to me, hilarious amount of clout associated with having the original paperback, um, which is just so amusing to me because when I was self-publishing, I wasn't trying to make a, like, I wasn't trying to make a living with my self-published works. I was just, um, you know, when you're self-publishing, you're your own you're your own editor, you're your own interior designer, your own cover designer, unless you outsource those things. But obviously I didn't have the resources for that. So I was just doing everything on my own. And to think that people are like, no, I want this cover that had almost no input when now I know how much goes into everything in the traditional publishing process. It's like, no, no, trust me. It's better to have like 20 people involved at least. Yeah. So what was it like? I mean, when you published the Atlas six originally, how does that compare to publishing the Atlas paradox now? I mean, we have, um, you know, Macmillan behind you, you have all of the sort of support, I think from the bookish community, what does it feel like now to just have this sequel finally coming out? Um, I always joke that I, <laughs> I was, um, people used to say things like, oh, she's so underrated. And then, you know, within maybe the span of a week, it went from she's so underrated to, oh, this is so overrated. <laughs> um, so I, paradox, um, actually being so busy and having a sleepless toddler was kind of a blessing in disguise because I didn't have the time to ask myself, like, how do I follow up a book talk sensation? Like, that's the kind of question that you cannot sit with. I was just reading, um, an interview with Taylor Jenkins Reid for, I, th I think with the cut, and she was saying something about how seeing a lot of reviews is not helpful because even knowing your beloved is not helpful to the process. Like it's just not a productive, you get the, the really eviscerating reviews that are obviously not helpful. And then the, this is the greatest thing I've ever read. And you know, that can't be true. <laughs> um, so going into paradox is very helpful that I like just had to get it done at that, at that point, you know, readers had been waiting like two years and I was on this very compressed production schedule, which I wanted it to be because I, I didn't want to make people wait longer. I wanted to get that book out as soon as possible. And um, so I just had to sit down and write and just had to, you know, bring it back to, okay, what story am I telling? This has always been about these six people and their relationships. So let's just, live there in that conflict and just focus on that and try to block out the noise as much as possible, good and bad. Yeah. And so how long did this book take to write? I feel there's so many caveats to this uh, answer, but so I drafted it in four weeks. Um, but that was again, because like I had a baby full on infant, not sleeping. I wasn't sleeping. I had to have my mom come live with me, which she could only do for, I basically wrote it in two, two week periods. 
And then um, it took me at least another four weeks to edit structurally, and then probably another month of revisions. And then, you know, the whole process of editing takes, it, it's probably going to end up being around a year total. Um, but the drafting process was very, very brief. It was actually a very nice, so I've always been a pantser. Um, that's always my thing. I'm very, like I said, very character driven. Uh, the emotional arcs are very important to me. And that's the kind of thing you can't really plan in advance. And um, I kept finding like every time I try to outline, I could not make the connection from point A to point B, or it was too much work to try to do that. And um, so with, but with this process, I didn't even go back to read what I had just written. I didn't have time for that. So I would write something and then, you know, go feed the baby or help him take a nap, come back, sit down and just keep going based on where I think I left off, uh, which made for kind of a messy draft. And then also I edited the first draft on my phone while the baby slept. So there were tons of autocorrect errors. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was a real uh, it was a real exploration of what can I create almost entirely based on mood, which I think like it wouldn't work for every book, obviously, but it works for this series because I think that most of what people enjoy about it is very atmospheric. Yes, I agree with that. This book made me think a lot and feel a lot of things. And oh. it it made me want to keep, you know, keep going and see what happens. And it was so fascinating to see the evolution of these characters and different circumstances from, you know, each perspective. I love how we sort of get snippets of things from different points of view and the pieces kind of come together to make a a complete picture. Although I know there are things uh, forthcoming <laughs> that I can tell because I did see you're currently working on or uh, the third book of this trilogy as well. Yeah, so the third book is drafted at this point. At the time that I wrote book two, I did not know how the series was going to end, but now I do. Oh, I was going to ask, so has this always been, have you always sort of had an idea for three books uh, with this, or is that something that just came over time? Uh, so I knew it was going to three be three books based mostly on the fact that to me, this trilogy is one story, but I just knew it had to be broken up into three parts because that's about how long I thought it was going to take to tell it. I had essentially imagined that book one was going to be this very claustrophobic, just inside the manor house, this very compromised series of like system of ethics um, that only works if you can only see what's inside this house. And then book two would zoom out slightly more. And then in book three, we're like now out in the world. Now we understand how the characters fit into uh, the larger society. So um, yeah, it's just a gradual zooming out. That was how long I thought it was going to take. I am originally a fan fiction writer, so I just use very high word count. <laughs> so yeah, I just knew it was going to be long. I love that you described that as a gradual zooming out because this really felt like we got some additional pieces to this puzzle that we sort of were introduced to a lot of people in book one. So without spoiling anything, and this is so hard to do, obviously, I enjoyed <laughs> the perspectives of some of those maybe additional characters that we first met in the Atlas Six and get a little bit more insight into them in the Atlas Paradox. And I'm sure this is a question you've gotten frequently, but I'm curious to know what the inspiration was for this series 
and for these characters? Like what was that initial spark that drew you to this story? So um, there's a few different answers to this. So I actually originally wrote a story with some of these characters that was a portal, like second world fantasy. And uh, it was set in college. So the characters were younger and it was a very, everybody bands together to take down the bad guy. And I was just bored to death by it. Like I I didn't even want to go back and edit it because I was just like, this is not complex enough. This isn't what I am genuinely interested in. It it sort of felt like an exercise in trying to create something (laughs) that I had read before, you know, something that was like, let's make something that um, feels publishable. And then when I was looking back at it, I uh, decided that some of the secondary characters were more interesting. Um, So I wanted to push them to the forefront. I wanted to get rid of the bad guy element. Um, I think that at this point in my writing, I don't like to have a villain. I kind of feel like everybody's their own villain or everyone is someone's villain. So there's no real villains, no real heroes wanted to do something that was truly morally gray, um, where the the ethics, like I said, are very compromised based on the context and the the situation and um, wanted it to be more about the people. And at this point, when I wrote this, it was the winter of 2019. Politics are obviously never great, but they certainly weren't good then. (laughs) And I was also trying to decide whether or not it was ethical for me to have a child when I think recently there had been that report that was like, Earth has a good 10 years left in terms of air. Like we've got 10 10 years of air left. Um, We are having all the, you know, could do nothing about gun control. Roe is up in the air. Um, What else was high? It just, just seemed like I cannot guarantee that my child will be safe um that they would be happy i that they'll have bodily autonomy uh so so should i have a baby even though i really want one and um that was the question i was asking myself and and my husband also really wanted to have a baby so he kind of presented me with this argument of like he would say, we would have these very philosophical arguments about it where he would just be like continuity of the species and i'd be like for what And I just kept asking myself, like, what happens if the world is dying? And um, I think ultimately the point that landed with me is that the world is not going to die. We are not the world. We (laughs) occupy this world. We ruined this world, question mark. Um, But it will go on without us. So what is really important to us? And then the only answer I could give myself is that the only thing that matters is what we are to each other. And so that was kind of, that was what made me want to look at this. sort of big uh, cerebral question of like, the world is ending, how do we save the world, but make the actual plot just about relationships. Yeah, this book, I love that because I feel all of those elements in this book and it really does focus on the way that these people relate to each other and how much they take you know, responsibility for their own actions versus how much they put off onto, you know, things beyond their control or like it's the society or it's the forum mm-hmm. or, you know, right. I'm we're just one person. Um, but I think you hit home that point that you, like you are in charge of your own individual choices. And so you can do what you can, I think. And it's not your responsibility to try and make the world change, but you can be the person that starts or that makes better choices. And I'm curious because you said a lot of these characters are very much in that like morally gray area. 
if there's a character that you have from this group that that's your favorite or that you would, you know, most enjoy being around? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't have a favorite. I I think that it's my personal belief that when the author has a favorite, you can feel it. Like the chemistry on the page changes. And this book hinges so much on on the audience being equally interested in each character's point of view that it feels to me like dangerous to identify one that I like best or agree with most. Um, I, but I do, you know, I, I do think that there are characters who, um, I, they're at various ages and they come from various backgrounds. And so some of that makes them more or less relatable to certain people. And I hope that that is felt like to me, I think that there are characters where you can tell they are older or like, you know, that they've seen more of the world and that some of that, you know, naivete is built into some of them as well so it's kind of this weird you know it's not coming of age because they are adults um but it's more like I think we I think it's kind of ubiquitous now this this um the quarter life crisis is something that I think we are feeling as millennials and uh, presumably gen z that um (laughs) that the the pressure of the world is kind of elevated. We've, we've, um, the, the, we're not going to be able to achieve the same things that previous generations did. The, the markers of adulthood have been pushed later or earlier, depending. I, so I feel like the, the markers of success have been pushed off so far, but then the, uh, crisis has arrived earlier. (laughs) Um, uh, so like the, the, the question of why do I exist, I think happens now in our twenties, as opposed to our forties and fifties. Um, I completely forgot where I was going with that. Cause I got lost in my own personal crisis. Oh yeah. Favorite character. <laughs> there, there are some times when I feel like in this, in this book, particularly, I really enjoy the conversations that Callum and Parisa have together because they are, they are just very funny to me. I, and I do, I do want to say that you should not to say I'm hilarious, but you should find the Atlas series funny. Like it, it shouldn't be, you shouldn't take everything very seriously. There is a lot of underlying sarcasm to it, but um, I've noticed that if, if you don't, some people who don't like the book for certain reasons aren't catching those undertones of like, no, no, I'm not being sincere. Um, and uh, yeah, so Callum and Parisa were very funny because they are both older. They're both um, their, their view of the world is distorted based on their like disillusionment. Um, and then also watching them interact with the younger characters is sometimes very funny. Like, uh, watching Nico talk to Parisa is like very amusing to me. And then I think that in this particular book, the relationship between Callum and Reyna is like, that's, that's just gold for me. Like (laughs) this mix of two people who are so chaotically neutral or think they are um that it turns out to be hopefully very funny and slightly dangerous I can agree that their their interactions were very funny at times because they both were trying to like almost outdo each other and who could care less about the other person or about the situation and so that comes across in some of the things they say um, it did, this book is quite funny. It did have me laughing a lot oh, with some of the sarcasm and the, the snark and the little bits of humor um, popped in. And if you don't have a favorite character, is there one that you think, or that you have a lot of fun writing, or is that true of all of them? 
I certainly had more fun writing Callum in this book. In in the first book, I had to still, I, I knew he was not going to be liked. It's obviously not Callum's job to be liked or loved in any way. Um, but going into book, but I still had to make him like interesting. I still had to make people want to read his perspective, which was a little bit of a challenge. But going into book two, um, I felt like the stakes were much lower because at this point I was like aware how many people hate him. And um, being able to play with that hatred as something that's like, yeah, I know you hate him. And uh, so I don't know how to explain the, yeah, I just felt that there were lower stakes and I was like, I'm not going to make anyone try to like him more. I'm just going to let him do his thing as if he's almost performing for a separate audience. Um, it kind of reminds me, I think about this a lot, that uh, the, oh my gosh, what is that actor's name? The actor who plays Yaskier in The Witcher, he, what, Joey something? Okay, I'm sorry. I'm Apologies to Joey, question mark. But he said something about how he acted his character as if everyone else was in a drama and he was in a rom-com. And I feel like that's what's happening with Callum right now. Everyone else is in a drama and Callum is in a rom-com. And so I really enjoyed writing that. Yeah. And I think that comes across Callum to me is so interesting because he was definitely in his own space in this book, like kind of doing his own thing. But I always was intrigued to, to pick up on how much he was actually like with it all, despite kind of seeming like he was just functioning on his complete like own research. I'm doing my own thing, but he was still very Mm -hmm. much a part of the larger group. And I love what you said that he was kind of like often his own rom-com and everyone else was in their own drama because his yeah. moments were some of the funniest ones. And I think you, I think it's easy to dislike Callum, but I think that you can also see that there's a lot more to him than maybe our basic assumptions about his character. There is, I, um, I purposely left some character development out of book one. So there are lots of people, for example, who say that we didn't get enough from Reyna. And to that, I say that is a purposeful choice because I don't think that Reyna as a person is someone you would get to understand in the first book. Like that, so you meet her and you get a year with her. I don't think you're gonna get to see what gets under her skin until the second year when things have changed and the tension in the house is much, much worse. And because in book one, these characters have no connections to each other. They come in, they don't like each other, don't, are not invested in working together. And then in book two, they have this thing that kind of unites them, but not really. But now they have opinions about each other and they have seen each other's weaknesses. And, and so there is an investment now, um, I don't know if that came through. So there is an investment now that wasn't there before. And so a lot of them are behaving much more irrationally and much more emotionally. And that is why you get to see more of who they are. Because now I actually wanted to have um, uh, sort of, I wanted to slowly reveal that actually Reyna and Callum are two of the most emotionally driven characters in the book, despite them claiming they aren't. Yes, I think that comes across. And the more they try to not care, I think the more you can see that they definitely care about this group of people um, that they've been, you know, put into this situation with this society with. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. 
You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Bonjour. This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor, and every week I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food, so come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app. So of the six, they all have their own, you know, abilities and powers. Which magical talent would you most like to have? Oh, telepathy, for sure. I'm very nosy. I don't want to be responsible for other people's emotions. Like I'm with Callum. I don't, I don't want to be, have to make people happy or make them feel better. But I do kind of want to know what they're thinking about. Um, so yeah, I would definitely, uh, a lot of, I will admit a lot of what Parisa does makes sense to me. Yeah. She is such a fascinating character. I love how she uses her abilities, but it seems like with so much intention, I thought her perspective on everything was always so fascinating. And there's quite a lot in this story um, that she's trying to figure out without it's without giving too much away. Um, I loved seeing the, the evolution of sort of things with her and Dalton. Um, Mm. that gets very interesting in this book. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. One, um, I think one of my favorite sort of behind the scenes stories about this is, uh, when we were, when, um, studios and producers were approaching me about adapting the Atlas six, uh, we had obviously some discussions about casting and, and sometimes people would ask me very specifically, like, what are your casting notes for Dalton? What do we need to know about Dalton? And I was like, uh, you need to find someone who's a very good actor, like someone, well, obviously everyone has to be a good actor, but <laughs> someone who can really do a lot of range because Dalton has many sides. Um, And so that was just sort of a fun, uh, that was a fun conversation to speculate about, okay, which actors can really carry both the academic and the potential villain. Yeah. And that's a great point because his character really seems to come, you know, more into focus in this book. We learn a lot more about him, which Again, without giving anything away, there are just so many really interesting characters in this book. Um, and it's so fascinating to watch them all interact with each other and almost try to like one up each other or like, you know, be the one that has the upper hand. And it seems like that's mm-hmm. constantly changing throughout the book, given like the things they're learning, the, um, you know, texts that they have access to as they're all sort of playing this game with each other. It's absolutely fascinating to see it unfold in the Atlas Paradox. And so we talked about this a little bit, but I'm curious to know what your writing process is like in a little bit more detail. Uh, Does it vary from book to book and sort of series to series? Or um, do you kind of have a similar but different process for each one? (laughs) 
my uh my child has joined us now and he is nursing with his butt in the air so anyway um <laughs> uh so my process has changed from book to book not because i um would like it to i would prefer consistency but the circumstances of creation change from book to book um like book one the way that i wrote it i think it was about um when i wrote the atlas six it took me about eight weeks uh back when i still had 24 usable hours so i would basically write the atlas six for two days out of the week and then the other days i'd work on different projects so it was nice to be balancing multiple works and kind of have things going on at the forefront of my thoughts as well as simmering in the background that was very helpful when it came to the science in the atlas six that was just stuff that i needed to think about and process before i wrote it um and then going into book two i obviously did not have that freedom and was very rushed and my mother was living in my house and i it's a little chaotic i i hope that the, you know the book is chaotic for different reasons i hope that the actual writing is <laughs> understandable um <laughs> i think at this point it is but uh and then book three in a similar way um but my my husband is a is a physics teacher and so he was off for summer vacation so i got some time to really sit and um i did a lot of reading philosophy um psychology it got into a much more i mean the series is always cerebral i refer to it as the book of my mind um sort of playing on the book of my heart this is definitely about like what what have i been thinking about and questioning at this very uh you know challenging time in my life it, it all of this is a thought exercise that came about as I was exploring parenthood or observing the world from the angle of like, uh, what do we do now? <laughs> and also a place of great concern and also wondering if publishing was ever going to have room for my voice or if my voice was ever going to be relevant uh, in a way that felt consumable. Um, and, I, and obviously I came to the answer no and was proven wrong. Uh, which is great, fantastic. I normally don't like to be wrong, but I'll take it in this instance. Uh, so a lot of times I, I I certainly do not start writing until I've had a period of meditation. I think a lot before I write. Um, so even though I don't do any pre-writing, I do a lot of what I call meditating, which is like um, sort of producing cinematically in my mind what I think is going to happen, where we're starting from. I always allow myself, so I, I call myself a pantser, but I'm really more of a reformed pantser. I allow myself to write the first 20 to 30,000 words without anything. Just like, okay, this is what I'm thinking about. This is who I think the characters are going to be. I'm just gonna start writing. And then around when I hit that like end of act one point, then I force myself to stop, uh, consider about how long I think the book is going to be, um, how many like major beats there need to be. So at that point I stop um, and I write a very skeletal outline. So for the Atlas Six, for example, the table of contents, that was my outline. So that was just me determining like at what point do big events need to happen. Um, I am not, I will, I emphatically say I'm not an action driven writer. Like a lot of people will come into my books and be like, they're slow. Like, yes, they're slow because I like to ruminate to the point of meaninglessness on occasion. And I like, I like that slow pace. Um, I prefer, you know, things that have a literary bend to them. So just say, just saying that, uh, right up front, sorry, my phone is ringing. And, um, 
but I still like to know, I'd like to make sure that we are moving forward, that we're getting to see examples of big magic, you know, the things that people come to fantasy for. We want to see the parts of the world that we like. We want to see um, the stakes, uh, obviously, <laughs> escalate. Um, and then as I, so then as I continue to write, I fill out a little bit. So I flesh it out as I go. So what started as, you know, essentially eight lines eventually became about two to three pages uh, with me figuring more out as I went. Um, and actually for book three, I felt at that point that I should know what was going to happen. So I did write an outline that was a little bit more detailed. And then I threw it away at the end because I could not, I could not make things connect. So the events that happened still like they happened, but um, you know, like I said, the, the connecting the emotional dots is something that I have to do as I'm going. I can't wait to see. We're already I'm already talking about book 3. I can't wait to see where these characters are going to end up because this book really does push them in a different direction almost and we learn new things about them and they've really changed from the start of the series to the end of the Atlas paradox. I'm so intrigued to see what things are in store for them as you've kind of set them up at the end of this book. I so desperately want to talk about the end, but that's a huge spoiler. <laughs> so we'll leave that uh, for after people have this book in their hands. So it's been a wild few years. Are you looking forward to the book tour for this and seeing some of your readers uh, experience the Atlas Paradox when it comes out? Oh, definitely. Oh, gosh. Like I have obviously crippling imposter syndrome. I'm not, I'm not crippling. I'm fine. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> but but certainly there there are days when it doesn't feel real and um handling my own mental health can be very difficult sometimes because the uh the, you know the the community of of readers the book community is great for readers and it's not necessarily the best place for writers <laughs> I don't belong there I try not to enter um but you know sometimes I get tagged in things that I I, at this at this point, I think there are some people who are like have forgotten that I'm a human being. Like that when they tag me, they are still reaching me. Understandable confusion. <laughs> um, but um, you know, so it is actually so much nicer to be on tour and actually talk to a human being in front of me and not just things that I feel like I I always feel like I'm walking into a room. I'm in that like panic at the disco song where it's just like, ah, close the goddamn door. <laughs> Sorry, uh, keep going. I was just going to say, hopefully it's going to be nice to connect with the readers who are so excited for this book to come out and are going to be such huge fans. Um, I know that as a reader myself, it's so exciting to see the person that created something that you, you know, you enjoy and you feel passionately about. So I hope that as stressful as I'm sure it is to go on book tour, that it is energizing in that way. Oh, I, and then I feel a little bit hypocritical to say that I, I do, I always want my work to stand on its own. Like, I think the ideal is that you write a book and then you don't have to peek behind the curtain and it just stands for by itself. But I know from experience that hearing an author talk about their process and, and uh, what things mean and kind of getting to hear the author's voice uh, brings out something extra in the book. I definitely had that experience with, um, I read 
Rachel Cusk's motherhood memoir before I read the outline trilogy. And I felt like getting to hear her personal experience really fleshed something out when I got into her writing. And it was something that I don't think I would have understood the books the same way if I didn't understand what she sounded like as a human. And so as much as I like to think like, a lot of times people will ask me questions like, what are their zodiac signs? Or what are their Myers-Briggs signs? And um, sometimes I'll say things like, that's extra textual information. I don't think that that's important for me to weigh in on. I do think that it's a great opportunity to get to hear authors talk about their work. And it's, oh, it's such an honor, honestly, such an honor that anyone wants to hear me talk about it at all. So I, I do want to emphasize that I, I do love being on tour. I happen to be an extrovert. So I, I get very energized in like a, a very, you know, supernatural soul sucking kind of way. Is there um, a location that you're going on this tour that you're most looking forward to or that you're excited to, to see? I am getting to visit in person a lot of bookstores that I've done virtual uh, appearances with. So I'm really excited about that. It feels unfair to say I'm most excited about anything, but I am very excited to see the novel neighbor, both because they're um, like, I'm just a fan of their social media accounts in general. They make the best like, you know, reels or whatever it is um, about various books. Um, and also they did an Instagram live with me when I was nobody, when this book was self-published and not even, not even close to being picked up at that point. I don't think, I, I don't recall that being the case. Um, so it's just this very exciting idea that these are people who genuinely have loved the book since it was just a book and not a sensation. And that is just, yeah, I'm just, I'm very, very lucky. I hope that's coming across. Yeah. And I love that. And I do think that's what's been a really interesting part of the last couple of years is obviously the book industry has been through a lot with the pandemic. Local booksellers have been through a lot. And so I feel like having these virtual events and these things that booksellers have gotten so creative at doing like the social yes. media reels and yes. TikToks and things like that. I just enjoy how much more I think I'm able to discover these local places to support and like order my books from and just have um, that community and see their supportive authors has been so cool. I think out of the last couple of years um, and vice versa to have authors support these local booksellers as well. Um, I know that I'm always inclined to try to buy things from someone's local bookshop, even if it's not yes. local to me. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I do just have to say on the topic of um, social media and books and, and the way that I think our, the way that we consume books has shifted. I think it's great because the Atlas Six doing what it did could not have happened before the pandemic, I don't think, because um, it was our way of being a community without being physically together and books are a great way to do that because when you finish an exciting book the first thing you want to do is talk about it actually when you finish a book you hate also the first thing you want to do is talk about it so there's <laughs> there's um I I like the love about it though is that you know the atlas six was this self-published book and uh that was able to do this insane thing because all these people came together and had thoughts about it and it's just fantastic and I love that and I love how authentic it was completely separate for me I was very pregnant and not marketing my book at all so this just like this had nothing to do with me really it was just people who loved something and wanted to share it and um you know it wasn't publisher driven it wasn't and it, yeah and and then for independent bookstores to then be in support of that little tiny self-published book. It's just, um, it's just an amazing 
series of events of what can happen with people who love books. It's been really cool. And I I don't want to say there's been like a book renaissance, but it just feels like we maybe appreciate books in a different way now. Um, And I'm thinking particularly in the way of like special editions. I know this Mm. series has gotten quite a few special treatment editions. Like there's the Waterstones edition. um, And was it Illumicrate or Fairy Loot had a special edition? Yeah, Illumicrate and Fairy Loot. Yes. Amazing. Both did some incredible Um, books. How does that feel to see those like gorgeous versions of your book? Oh, it's just unreal. And I think I had a, I had a hard time understanding book subscription boxes are still fairly new. This isn't, um, you know, it, it wasn't something that I was thinking about at the time. So for me, actually the one that felt big was getting the Barnes and Noble exclusive. Um, just because I remember like for me, I grew up in the suburbs of San Francisco. So my closest bookstore was a Barnes and Noble. And I remember getting all my books from there and pre-ordering them and doing the midnight thing at Barnes and Noble. And so getting the Barnes and Noble exclusive with this like beautiful flashy gold cover was very, um, it was very, uh, like I've arrived kind of moment, but all the, yeah, all these special editions are just gorgeous. And I agree with you. There's, there's something about the way we consume books now where they're a point of pride, um, which I think that, I mean, technically it's always been true. Like anthropologically, like the reason that Jeff Bezos chose books for Amazon is because it represents a certain demographic of people who do consume regularly. But where I think social media has taken that to a more interesting place is the, the age um, that like uh, young women, especially in that sort of 18 to 25 gra- like, uh, what's the word in bracket, there's the word. <laughs> Sorry, I don't sleep still. That's an age when I was not reading for pleasure because I was in college and did not have time to read for fun. And then in law school and like, I don't remember picking up a single book from that period of my life. But then as soon as I started reading again, just remembering how much I enjoyed it and how much joy and, and, um, you know, exhilarating depression reading gave me. (laughs) Um, and yeah, so I love that that age group, it's like, it's cool to read. It's cool to like spend your time reading. It's no longer this like weird thing. You're, it's not, it's not isolated the, the way it used to be. Um, so definitely love that. Yeah. And I think that's true. There's a lot more community or access to community now around reading as well, especially just with so much of our lives online with TikTok and social media. If you read a book, like you said, you want to talk about it so you can post about it and somebody who's read it can comment. And there's just like a whole level of dialogue that we didn't have, you know, even 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, I mean, like I knew I was a nerd from such an early age, like just true. I, I my, one of the stories I love to tell is that when I was in fourth grade, I started realized like, uh Oh, I'm a nerd. And so I tried to um, go all in on the aesthetic and I went to chess club and then I was like, Nope, not this kind of nerd. Um, and I, I was that kid who like used to walk around reading a book during recess or like from class to class, I would read a book. And so that's, you know, a very solitary activity. That's, um, I think the difference between reading as just like a thing that you do and um, ostracizes you a little bit to now you can share that experience. And yeah, access, like you said, is really, really important. And certainly I understand, I, I definitely understand both moods of like, this is amazing. And I want to share it with someone as a form of love. And then also, oh my gosh, like, you know, it's like when you eat something gross and you're like, you have to try this, taste this. 
Yeah. I think it's either, it's always those two extremes. Like I always comment, you know, anytime somebody is leaving a review for anything, it's either because they really loved it or because they had a horrible experience. There's no in between, like this was fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The people who leave like, well, mostly three-star reviews are like very responsible human beings. Like, thank you for doing that. That's like when people leave the, the customer reviews that are like, this was fine. Like, thank you for taking time out of your day to tell me that. (laughs) Exactly. And so just to bring it back to the book, as we wrap up, is there anything that you want readers to take away from the Atlas Paradox? Um, Well, I loved that you said you thought things, uh, you thought about things and felt things because that's really, that's, that's, I want you to take away something true and whether that truth is yours or mine, not important. I hope that you think about something and you feel something and something in this book makes your, the thing in your chest go boom and the thing in your head go buzz. And like, that's the goal. Like, I hope you walk away with something worth talking about. Definitely. I am going to be honest. I am going to think about this book for a long time. I, it's, (laughs) there are a lot of things I feel like I need to process and think through. Um, I love that because I love, that's my preferred reading experience. I love to continue thinking about things after I've read them. And so to be able to create something like that is just the honor of my life, the honor of my nerdy life. I love that. And so where can our listeners find you on social media? Um, so I'm pretty much everywhere as Olive Blake. Sorry, there's my child again. Okay, one second, one second. Hi. Ah, um, so yeah, so I'm pretty much everywhere as all of you, Blake. Uh, I have public, um, playlists on Spotify for my books and stories. Um, I am also on Tumblr. I do. I am one of those people who still love Tumblr. Um, but I'm also in the usual places like Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I have a YouTube series that I sometimes contribute to called all of you, Blake is not writing, which is where I have a lot of craft advice and sort of general big sistering. Yeah. And quickly, because I forgot, are you allowed (laughs) to talk about the Amazon show for the Atlas six at all? Any, not, not yet. Yeah, no, No. I wish, but, um, (laughs) it's like, it's alarming to say, given how slowly traditional publishing moved, it's moves. It's crazy to say that TV moves really slowly, uh, but it does. (laughs) And then unfortunately I don't have anything yet. Do you have any, if you had your dream cast, are there any actors you would have in mind or is that jinxing it by putting that out there? <laughs> um, partially, yes. So I, what I would love is to have six complete unknown actors play the Atlas Six because I would love for them to come on the screen and be, you know, from the places they're actually from and ha- share those origins. And like, they show up and you're like, yep, that's Nico. And like, that's Parisa rather than thinking like, oh, that's that person from that show or that movie. But, you know, with TV, you obviously <laughs> you need to give people a reason to watch. So we do need a star. We do need a big name. And I have someone in mind uh, for Atlas. And so I'm not going to jinx it because I am told that there is a possibility we could get them. So... I won't say it until we do. <laughs> so we'll just have to await further news and then yeah. I can guess if I was right on who I would, <laughs> okay. you would yeah, maybe I had in mind. <laughs> a lot of people are right. I definitely have seen a lot of people correctly guess who I would want for that part. And the person I have in mind is just a touch older, but I think it would work because Atlas is actually in his early forties. So yeah. 
Yeah. Atlas feels, um, elusive to me and what his actual age is, even though I know logically how, like that he's yeah. in his early forties. <laughs> yeah. Just- and that's definitely, that is purposeful. I want him to have that feeling of like the, the, he, he's the, you know, he's that trope of like the elusive magician. Um, and we get to see a little bit more of him as the books progress, but I definitely have someone in mind who's very, very human. Yeah. He's sort of larger than life, but Mm -hmm. I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to answer my questions and talk to us about the Atlas paradox. I know there are people that are absolutely chomping at the bit uh, to get their hands on this book. And so uh, listeners, this book comes out in October, so we don't have too long to wait. Um, and I can't wait to see uh, what people think. Thank you so much again for taking the time to chat with me. No, thank you so much. This was so fun. Thank you. Thank you. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on overdrive.com and our library funds can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen Podcasts, visit evergreenpodcast.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer, Jill Grunewald, and Joe Skelly, and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.